Thank you for tuning in to the Mile 40 podcast. I am Beshoy Tadros, the author of Break Barriers and Audacious, both of which are sold on Amazon. And I invite you to join me as I engage with guests to discuss those bounce back moments that we encounter on our personal journey. Mile 40 is a forum to learn about how athletes, professionals, and leaders of all backgrounds stare down moments in life where the only option is to rise up. The Mile 40 podcast strives to remind listeners that the comeback is always greater than the setback. Welcome back to another episode of the Mile 40 podcast. I can't even believe who I'm speaking to today and the context of this conversation. And I'm not saying that to hype him up. I'm really saying that because we kind of joked around right before we got on here and said, if 10 years ago, someone told us that we'd be on this podcast sharing some of the information we're going to share today, we both would have said, you're crazy. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce you all to Jason Tardik. You may know Jason for a variety of reasons, but I'm just going to list a couple of them and we will run through how we got you know, to this trajectory throughout the podcast. So first of all, he's the host of Apple's top charting business podcast, Trading Secrets. He is the author of the four-time best-selling book, The Restart Roadmap, Rewire and Reset Your Career. He has been known for his appearance on The Bachelorette, amongst many other TV appearances. So that's just me listing off a few, Jay. I'm looking at your resume and I can keep going, but I'm going to cut it off there. Thanks for joining me today. Bashoy, it's so good to be here. Thank you for having me and congrats on the podcast. It's amazing. Thank you. Thank you. So before we dive into things, you have a pretty big game coming up tonight. You know, it's the kickoff, the NFL kickoff today. The Bills are playing. How are we feeling? I'm shaking. If you hear me like, you know, like uh, any of my words crack a little bit, or if I'm like talking with a little extra emphasis, it's because I am so damn fired up. The Buffalo Bills season has started. And yes, I'm just calling this whole season the Buffalo Bills season because we're projected to be in the Super Bowl. We're projected to win the Super Bowl. Our, our team is never, I don't think in the history of the Buffalo Bills franchise has ever been this stacked on all sides of the ball. So I'm ready to go. Hopefully we can uh, get this first win tonight. You know, ever ever since I've known you, and I've known you since the early 2000s, yeah. um, I, I've I've come into every year hearing this is our year. But for once, <laughs> for once, I think this might actually be your year. Um, and as a disgruntled Jets fan, and as a friend of yours, you know, I wish you all the best uh, throughout this season. I appreciate um, it. I appreciate it. <laughs> but um, you know, to segue, um, like I had, like I had told Jay before, the premise of the Mile Forty podcast is really to dive into those pit to peak moments in life that we all come across. And you know, we've had various guests on the show, Jay, from different backgrounds across different arenas, talking about some of the pits that they face professionally, personally, um, and how essentially those pits have driven some of the momentum toward their upward trajectory and the lessons that they learned throughout. Now, you know, taking a step back, someone that doesn't know you could be looking at you from the outside, could be thinking, wow, this guy's got a lot going for himself. You know, he's he's on TV screens, he's on magazines, his face is everywhere. He's a lovable personality, um, you know, but on the other side of the coin, it wasn't the smoothest ride for you, uh, despite, you know, perhaps might be put out there. So let's take a step back to, you know, perhaps your years right after college, um, I, you know, for context for everybody on the show, 
Uh, Jay and I both attended college at SUNY Geneseo. We both had a desire to dive into the business world and took different routes upon graduations. So let, let's start there, Jay. What, what happened to you after college? Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you for saying all that. And yeah, we had a hell of a time in college. You know, we always had the soccer house back in the day and we'd have a little bush light uh, keg that we would take down. And usually I'd always start my night off with filling that bush light up and finding Bashoy in the house and just shooting the shit. So here we are all these years later doing the same thing in different contexts. It's a beautiful thing. I love it. Um, but right after I graduated, you know, it was 2010. I was really trying to figure out like what was next for me. And it was a really tough time to get hired because this is just after the mortgage crisis, slowly rebounding, but not really. No one that I knew was getting like sizable offers. Like people from Geneseo, which is a great public school in New York, were like, you know, going to sell life insurance or go to sell, you know, like office supplies. And from the business uh, program, they're just people weren't landing anything material unless it was like in uh, a big four accounting firm. That was like where the people were actually landing the jobs. And so I was just scrapping and clawing to get any opportunity, ended up working at KeyBank in their management program. And there weren't many management programs at that time because companies just weren't investing in their young talent uh, just due to budget cuts. So I ended up working at the bank, uh, kind of worked my way through all the different areas of the bank, got really into corporate banking, ended up relocating to corporate headquarters in Cleveland, Ohio, and working for some big dogs there as a strategist, and inevitably ended up becoming a, a senior corporate banker. I was working with companies that earned $100 million revenue and greater. Got my MBA in accounting and finance. And I think this brings us to kind of the pit portion of your podcast, which is where it wasn't really the day-to-day -day job function that was mentally uh, get, getting and grabbing at me. It was living up to the image that the internal bureaucracy required. And it wasn't even being in these meetings that were driving some of these like panic attacks I was having. It was some of my colleagues in the meetings, you know, coming out of it, critiquing everything. Like, oh, I saw that your posture slipped or your tone changed, or you weren't that confident with this, or I didn't like the way that, you know, you could have changed the way you were dressed there. And I'm all about feedback, but it was getting to a point where I was trying to be something so much of what I felt I couldn't control until I eventually lost control. And I'm sitting in a meeting and, and it's a huge meeting. It's a big company. All the banks are pitching. And right, right when we're about to deliver, I feel this full like flush of panic come on to me. And I'm like, I don't know what to do. I start like, I'm like, all right, I just don't in my brain. I'm like, don't show your colors. Don't show your colors. Take a couple deep breaths. Like, don't, don't just shut up. Don't say anything. Cause I wasn't even my turn to present. And then it just took over to the point where if anyone knows about fight or flight, you, you, you just have to leave. You got to leave. So I excuse myself. I, I interrupt. I'm like, ask the CEO, hey, uh, is, is there a bathroom around here? And they all kind of looked at me like I had eight heads. And, I, uh, and they're like, yeah, around the corner. And I go around the corner, close the door behind me, and I just hit the deck. I hit completely passed out. I mean, I was like sitting in a pool in my sweat. I was just gray as a ghost. And I had realized that so much pressure that I've put on myself at that point to be something that I wasn't essentially got to a breaking point. And so that was a little bit about my pit as it relates to the whole corporate America piece of the book and uh, the yeah. question you asked. Well, you know, I'm just kind of remembering Jay from college. You know, you were a face 
of the soccer team. Um, <laughs> you know, you were definitely someone that people knew and, and stuck out. And, you know, and I say that literally because I'm pretty sure you were on, you know, the mag, the Geneseo magazine at the time. <laughs> uh, I remember there's this one picture you, uh, you know, you were kind of in beast mode on the field and um, <laughs> you didn't shy away necessarily from living up to what they were looking to portray. Um, and so in reading your book, you know, and knowing you personally and knowing your story and yeah. also myself working in banking and understanding the bureaucracy of it, I completely understand. And I, and I have a relatable moment and we'll dive into that. Um, so I understand what you went through. But I'm not going to lie. A part of me was a little bit shocked um, when you exposed yourself with regards mm-hmm. to it letting, you get, letting it get to that point. Mm-hmm. Um, were you surprised that it got to that point as fast as it did? Or was it kind of a buildup over time? Um, that got you there? No, it's it's actually interesting you say that. So like in college, these anxieties and these pressures that I felt, zero, had none. Uh, I remember coming out of school when I was doing all the grinding, trying to find an opportunity and in interviewing. And I, I'm, not tell, I'm not joking you. I'm not making this up when I tell you I couldn't fucking wait to interview. I was like, I looked forward to it like I looked forward to happy hour. I was like, I am going to crush this, like getting my doc presentation ready, everything. So none of that type of pressure ever mounted on me. And then when, this, when I started getting these panics of like questioning myself and starting to like kind of talk in a certain way and present in a certain way that wasn't me, but was the way that I was asked to be, I started to lose and and, and I would have like slip ups. I started to lose myself. I started to lose my confidence a little bit. And then you have like a little bit of a panic, like, you know, I'd be in a presentation and like, like a little something went off. I'd be like, what the hell was that, Jason? They've never done that in your entire life. Like what's going on? And then it just kept getting worse. I kept getting in my head and keep getting in my head. And then I had that full breakdown. I start to question everything. Now I'm like, wait a second, I can't, I can't be in these situations. I can't, you know, I can't uh, meet the expectations of these pressures that are put on me. Wait, never in my life have I not been able to meet expectations. And you just start questioning everything. Your self-confidence goes because of this like uncontrollable factor of your brain like taking over in ways you didn't want to take over. And I think you actually, like I've done a lot of research on like athletes, this happens to all the time. Can't compare a banker to an athlete, but they go through, like everything is upward trajectory. Momentum is massive. And they have like one completely fucked up moment on the field that's public that the world sees and they get trolled on the internet and they start questioning every move. And yeah. the deterioration of like their mental health and the deterioration of their performance uh, comes to fruition. That's how, that's what I think happened to me because it never, to your point, especially in college, hell no, it never happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's just good context because I think that again, like we were friends and I knew you, but you know, it never crossed my mind that something like that would happen. And it's funny because you know, I kind of went down a similar path. And I I was actually joking with Christine about it yesterday. I guess joking isn't really the way to put it. But we were talking about a time when I was in banking, where I got to a point where I was just ready to quit with no backup plan. I was just ready (laughs) to walk away, just not show up to work the next day and have zero plan with regards to what I was going to do with the rest of my life. Because I too was kind of at my, you know, limit when it came to the bureaucracy of, either putting on a show and being something that I'm not 
or you know the subtle feedback for things that really don't matter in the grand scheme of things mm-hmm. especially when you're working in a relationship based role you know they forget that it's relationship based at times <laughs> and that you know as much as you know making sure that your tie is up you know all the way to the top what's really important is does the person across the table actually like you right. you know do they 100%. you know would they share a drink with you would they break bread with you you know would they watch a game with you and um you know that's really what's going to dictate whether or not your deal goes through not whether or not like you know you're, you're wearing a white shirt and you know it's fully <laughs> polished it, it's not really what matters so um, true yeah and so um you know i i too kind of felt that and that's one of the things that i really connected with when i was reading your book um and i think it's something that um you know you and i both align on with regards to the industry as a whole and i know i remember talking about this on your podcast but i i don't think i ever got your answer with regards to um where do you think the industry needs to, you know, kind of pinpoint um, in terms of areas of improvement. You know, we can keep pointing out where we saw errors and where we saw issues and concerns. But, you know, let's say someone called you up and said, Jay, we're going to bring you in as a consultant. I'm running a mid-sized bank and I want to do this the right way. I don't want to do this the way some of the big boys are doing it. And I want to make sure that my people feel good and comfortable coming in, you know, day in, day out. How would you approach building that culture? I mean, I think the, the, the model works so well, especially for profitability, maybe not for mental health or employee engagement, because for like the macros, it makes sense, right? Like bring in a pool of the smartest people and hardest working people we know, grind them until they are literally flat on their face. Mm-hmm. And the people that can still get up and be here and want to be here, the people that we'll bring to the top, when we bring them to the top, they'll be taken care of uh, to a level they couldn't have even fathomed. And it it works for them and it drives profitability. And then the problem is those people repeat the same behavior that they were dealt and they beat the shit out of these other people. And until you get a generational shift, uh, there won't be any uproar. The problem is you have a generational shift. You have other options. You have other entrepreneurial ways. You have so much exposure through social media. So a lot of people are getting called out for some of the maybe more unethical ways of treating employees. Now, there's a lot of bosses out there in the corporate world, especially corporate banking, that do it extremely well. And let's not point finger at them. But I do think one of the biggest areas for improvement is especially in investment banking, corporate banking, is they bring people out and they want you to mold to their expectation of exactly what you should be. You should act a certain way. You should drink a certain amount. You should sleep enough. You should work out a certain amount. They have this mold. And if you don't fit that mold, it's going to be tough to rise the ranks and get what you want because bureaucracy is what dictates a lot of your success. And the problem with bureaucracy, a lot of it is subjective, not objective. And so I think one, put objective measures in place. Get rid of the subjective bullshit. I know it's easier said than done, uh, but let's see if they can try and make something like that happen. The other thing I think that would be great is like step into yourself. Anybody who's achieved anything that's great in this world can just have so much comfort in their own skin. And the problem is they try and make you something they want you to be as opposed to you just being your best you. And I think like from a leadership perspective, you're going to have to do a little bit more than here's the deck of cards. Here's the hand I was dealt go deal with it. You're going to have to do some work individually with the people you manage, understand what makes them tick, understand what makes them differentiated and expose and just magnify those skill sets. And people will flourish and stay engaged at levels that they haven't. And we're seeing all the bullshit, right? It's 
the quiet quitting, the exposure, the people leaving, the high turnover, uh, things have to change because the new generation just won't deal with it. No, I agree wholeheartedly. And, you know, I I think I feel a pit in my stomach every time I see, I'm a big New York Post guy. So every time I see a New Mm -hmm. York Post article about, you know, Goldman bankers walking out or around, you know, just kind of that pay bump that comes out of nowhere just to keep people happy for a little bit only for them to kind of, kind of go back into the cycle. And um, because it is cyclical as it stands. And to your point, it's going to take that generational shift to, um, well, the, I think the pandemic was an eye opener. We're like, wait a Agreed. second. Okay. We graduated 21. We got all this student debt. At an average age of retirement is like 63. We got like 40 years to work and in 40 years to like make a legacy and try and do something different or just make enough financial, have enough financial wealth so we can retire. And people are like, wait a second. Like I have so much more information at my fingertips with all the things happening in this world. I don't fucking have to be miserable. Do I have to get up and work? Do I have to grind? Do I have to be diligent and organized and consistent with whatever I'm doing? Yeah, but I don't have to fucking hate it. I don't have to feel like I'm walking to a room and my palms are sweaty because of the just the insecurities I'm dealing with because it's just a a weird organization that has weird cultural demands. Like you don't have to do that. There are so many options and industries and places that you could put yourself to work. And the first thing you have to do is if you're feeling those things is do some work on your yourself. You have to identify what is going to be the right fit because you can't constantly, you know, be searching for what's next. I agree. I agree. And I'm right there with you. Um, You know, you bring up a good point around people graduating from college and um, understanding that they have all this information at their fingertips and the landscape has changed so dramatically. And you're right. COVID was um, a period of time that really kind of eye opened, um, you know, for Various people across the hierarchy, whether you're a CEO or whether you're an intern, you realize you can get some stuff done um, in different ways than you were doing it before. Um, And, you know, given the context of your podcast, Trading Secrets, and what you're doing right now with regards to uh, pushing forth transparency um, around pay and around, um, you know, what to expect in different industries, um, what is your thought process on? You know, I, I I talk about this with my wife too. I don't really know that our daughter is going to be going to a four year college in eighteen in eighteen years from now, um, given you know the ROI. And you actually recently spoke about this too. Um, and and so I'm kind of interested with regards to your take. It's just price inelastic. Like you can't like any business model out there. When the prices go up, for the most part, so does demand shifts. And the prices have gone up over and over, year over year, for colleges. One of the reasons, in my opinion, they've gone out is because of the ease of access to funds that can afford some of these extremely pricey uh, schools and universities. And the problem is, we're not doing the thinking. They're saying, "Hey, what are we spending on?" Just like the mortgage crisis, like there was too much access to credit. And what happened? People bought homes that they couldn't afford and the entire market crashed. Well, now you got students with $1.7 trillion of debt and they cannot pay this stuff back given what they can earn within a lot of these positions. And now we're all seeing it. Now it's on every headline. Now it's created so much chaos that you have the federal government stepping in and and giving, you know, almost everybody $10,000 or $20,000 reprieval of loans based on your certain, um, you know, financial, uh, 
annual income. And so I just think like it's came to a point that people really are now being forced to rethink what they're studying, why they're studying it, what impact it'll have and what ROI it will have. Inevitably, I hope it just comes again down to the consumer getting smarter. The smarter the consumer is, the more efficient and the better off like the whole macro system will be. Because at the top, so many things are put in place, obviously, to drive profitability uh, back to organizations and shareholders and things like that. So if we don't bridge these gap between what we're spending our money on and what we know we're spending our money on, it's going to continue the way it is. But I think we're getting to a point where we're getting smarter. We're thinking about, do I have to go to the private college? Could I just go to the public school? What am I studying? What's the return on what I'm studying? Yeah. If I pursue this type of field, do I really even need a four-year degree? You know, And so I think as consumers and individuals and students and uh, people in the education system, we're just getting smarter. I think that we're going to see a ton more, and we're already starting to see it, uh, shifts to certifications, right? I agree. Like if you want to be a coder, you don't have to go to school. You can no. get a certification in coding and go make a hundred grand in a big city. No. There's so many different industries out there that can be tackled without the whole four year, uh, four year plus grind. Yeah, and I think we're starting to see it with some of the bigger organizations, especially in the tech space. Yeah, um, starting to say that like they're not really even looking at college requirements anymore. They're it's recruiting. Not- they're recruiting kids out of high school. Yeah. They're yeah, recruiting kids because, out of high school, putting them yeah. through their training education program. And you yeah. can go work for Google and Amazon and Microsoft. Yeah. And you don't need your little four-year degree from Geneseo anymore. No, you don't need it anymore. Um, so I want to I wanna keep us on track. And I want to go back to the boardroom, right? Where we, where we kind of mm-hmm. had our pit. Because as everybody knows, the story kind of picks up from there. Um, and <laughs> I know that there were you know, a couple ups and downs after that. But let's kind of talk really quick around, you kind of had that breakdown. Mm-hmm. You, you kind of hit this, this pit of like, like, this is not sustainable. Then what happened? Yeah, I think the biggest advice I could give anybody is I got somewhat comfortable at that moment. Like if, you're, if anyone's listening to this and like you just feel stuck and maybe it's not because you passed out at a, you know executive boardroom's uh, restroom. Maybe it's just because anything's occurring in your life. The big question is like, how do you get out? How do you restart? The biggest thing I did was I started to ask for help. You know, I was um, never someone to start leaning on other people. I always thought I can control my outcome and my situation until I realized I couldn't. And so I started asking for help and I started seeing help. And that was the biggest thing that helped me is like talking to a psychiatrist, talking to a therapist, um, talking to professionals that can help me better understand myself and better understanding me. And then I think one of the big things is like forgiving myself. Like you don't have to hold yourself to this standard of perfection. Like you had a fucking panic attack, big deal. Get up and move on. Use the information to put yourself in a better position to see what's next. And so, you know, those are just some of like the theories, philosophies, and takeaways I think anyone could listen to this and hopefully apply to their life if they're stuck. Specifically to me, um, yeah, I started seeing a therapist. I started, you know, coping. I started doing anything I had to do to find ways to continue to work because of my fucking student debt. Sorry if you can't swear on this. So it's wild what debt will do, right? For me at that point, it still wasn't a wake up call. It's like, keep working keep making money. Got to pay the student debt off. Got to get more power. Got to get more money. That's what I did. I just kept chasing the titles, chasing the titles. And I chased it all the way from New York to Seattle when I was offered, I think it was um, 
28 or 29 I was offered. It was, you know, it was before all the inflation yeah. shit, but it was like $110,000 signing bonus, 165K base and bon- and then the annual bonus could be, uh, you know, three, four times your salary based on performance. And I got a VP title and I was like the senior banker. I was like everything I wanted. And I got to Seattle and I was just fucking miserable. I mean, I yeah. was just like, wait a second. I worked my whole life. I've been passing out on bathroom floors, ripping down Xanax and beta blockers to get this. Like this sucks. I don't like this. And so I, a big thought I had too was like, how many, like I was very fortunate to experience all this in nine, 10 years. How many people go their entire life trying to get to that like C-level spot or a CFO, whatever leadership or founder, I don't know. Or just inside. Honestly, or, just inside. It's or just people are, inside. People are just fighting their lifetime. And I, I kind of was saying the same thing recently too. I fought, you know, what felt like an entirety to get into a big name bank. And then you get there and you're like, oh boy. Yeah. Like what, what was this for? Yeah. It could literally yeah. just be any position within a company. Yeah. And then it's like your hopes and dreams are like, like crushed because you think you've been chasing this light and trying to chase that carrot. You get there and you're like, this sucks. And so I was fortunate to do enough by 20. And weirdly enough, right at that time, I had got a call from ABC, the bachelorette to go on a reality show. And like, I would be the last person in the world to go on a reality show. Like I was like, everyone I told, they're like, think I got, they got the wrong guy, but I kind of hit that point where I was like, what am I doing? Like, why would I not go? And so that was one of the turning points that uh, inevitably led me to say, you know what, let's, let's give it a shot. Let's go throw away this 10 year career in MBA and relocating five times and all this bullshit for a shot at reality TV. It's like the most 2022 thing you can say. <laughs> um, you know, a- as it was going through your mind, um, you know, were you were the wheels already spinning in the back of your mind with regards to um, how you intended to present yourself on the TV show? Number one, number two, with regards to, you know, I've always known you to have a high business acumen, and I'm not saying that you know you went on the show to kind of build your business, but you know, I, I know that if I was called to be on a show like that, in the back of my mind, I'm already thinking, all right, like how am I going to make sure that if I don't find the love of my life on this show, and you know, things don't work out from that perspective, that I'm at least leaving myself a foundation to build off of. Mm-hmm. Was that something running in the back of your mind? So going into the show. Uh, I had already like this whole quiet quitting thing. I was already quiet quitting. I knew like if I didn't do the show, I knew in Seattle based on my deal, I had to stay for two years. Otherwise I would have owed some of those bonuses and relocations back. Mm -hmm. So I had it circled on my calendar. I have two years to barely meet the expectations and figure out what I want to do with my life. And so my plan was, is that I could use the skill set from the job that I acquired in my MBA and I could do something I thought was cool. And what I always thought was cool was grew up with Rob Gronkowski and got to spend some time with him. And I knew I could never be him, but I got to see his agents like pull him here and get this deal for him and sign this. I'm like, and they're in there, you know, they're in street clothes and they're like rolling up in this and doing all this cool shit. I'm like, this is entourage, right? was. So I was like, I want to go be a sports agent. So that was what like my plan was. Then this show happened. And my thought to answer your question directly, my thought process was this. Why not? If things don't work out, I mean, there's a safety net here. You know, it's not like, you know, I'm not going to the streets like I'm okay. And let's just see what happens. Now, there's no way that I could have projected five years later, you know, I'm I'm still making a, a, a 
good amount of money from influencing. I have a podcast. I have a book. I run a talent management company. Like none of this shit. I would have no idea. But what I said was like, let's just, let's get in the ride. Let's not try and control the ride. Let's stay true to yourself and whatever swings come your way for once in your life. Let's just be a little resilient and adaptable and go with them. And dude, I didn't know social. This is 2018, man. Yeah. Like social media, TikTok wasn't around. Social yeah. Instagram wasn't real. I didn't know how to really post. So I was more just like, yeah, if I find love, great. But like, I don't know. Who knows? What can, maybe this will be, maybe some cool could come. Maybe it won't. Let's just give it a shot. You know, I think in your journey, this may be, you know, you've had a lot of learning moments, but kind of taking that leap in particular had to be, you know, you're right. You did have something to fall back on if you had to. But, um, you know, what do you recommend to people out there who are kind of at this, you know, crossroads of taking a leap of faith or just continuing to, you know, work and work on what's in front of them? Yeah. I mean, the, that decision changed everything about my life for the rest of my life. It has like, it changes what I do right now. It's changed uh, so much of my network. It's changed my financial status. It's changed my happiness. There are so many things that no matter what, like if all Instagram, social media, and everything goes away tomorrow, that that decision has changed for the entirety of my life. And so I think about that and it's like that dumb Eminem song, but it's true. Like there are going to be small moments in your life that you can really take advantage of and use as an opportunity to catapult you, or you can let fear dictate your decision-making. And if I let fear dictate my decision-making, none of this happens. And every single buddy in my entire life that I considered a mentor, that I considered sound advice, that I considered a backbone to decisions I made, my board of directors, all of them instilled fear on me. All of them told me not to do it. But I took a shot and I did it. And I think in life, no, not everyone's going to have a shot to go on ABC, The Bachelor, but everyone's going to have some type of opportunity that comes their way. Some individual they can go meet, uh, something that could come, come their way. And the question I would have anyone ask themselves is, do you use fear as a mechanism to not do and live the dream you always wanted? Do you use your buddy's opinion chirping you saying, what a loser, this or that or this, dictating decisions you make for your professional, financial, and personal life? Because for most of my life, I did. Most of my life, I did. And the second I stopped giving a shit about what other people thought, and the second I just stepped into the real me is the second my entire life changed. And so I'd recommend uh, anyone, if they haven't started to do that, start with baby steps, start today, try one thing you wouldn't have done yesterday that you could do today, or one thing that you wouldn't have done because mom, dad, brother, sister, girlfriend, buddies would give you shit for, and go do it. And just yeah. see what happens. Like, God, go give it a God bait. knows you had a bunch of buddies who oh, I got a whole <laughs> lot of foundation giving me shit every second. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you had a lot. You had a lot of eyes on you uh, throughout the process. Gallery. Yeah, um, and and so that still kind do. of yeah, still yeah. Do. no, they're still there. They're still there. Um, and and so that kind of leads us kind of the, to the next step now. 
you're on the show and you know i remember watching you on the show i mean we all we all did we we had to know what was going on there and um you did an incredible job of just presenting yourself on the show um you know i think a lot of people you know took the opportunity to be on tv and perhaps um honestly let the opportunity slip away uh but you know you carried yourself very well and you want to talk a little bit about that experience you know some of the learnings of just being on the show yeah, I think I'm going to make another another reference to like, you know, one was Eminem. This is yeah. going to be Denzel Washington, American Gangster, only because it's the first thing that came to my mind when you said that was uh, there's a scene where Denzel brings his cousin away and he was like just chirping him for like what he was wearing. And he said to him, the loudest one, the loudest one in the room is the weakest. And then ironically enough for Frank Lucas, that's when he got sniped and in trouble when his outfit was outrageous and he was the loudest one in the room. And I noticed that in the show, everyone saw all these cameras and this attention and everyone was being the ultra alpha, loudest individual, most wildest dressed, craziest in all spectrum. If there was a standard deviation, 98% of people were acting as like an outlier, just what would not be normal behavior. And instead of like kind of getting stuck into that or falling victim to that, I was like, no, fuck it. I'm just going to be me. I'm just going to be me. And whatever happens, happens. If I go home night one or I stay to the end, I can leave here just saying I was me. And ironically enough, it was those people that were the loudest in the room and had to make a stand and had to be right and had to be the coolest or best dressed are the people that ended up imploding and falling on their face. And so I think in any circumstance, when you're in reality TV or when you're talking to a friend, you're in a podcast or when you're in that interview, just be you. If you can be the best version of you, you'll be in good shape. I think so many people though, go their whole lives so worried about everyone else that they truly don't know who they are. Most people do not know who they are. And so it's easier for them to point at people that are doing things wrong because they've never done them. And so I think that's a takeaway too. Yeah. And I mean, I think that was something that definitely stuck out. I mean, you know, you talk about it in terms of um, you know, other other people may be taking the opportunity to be loud on the show. And you were noticeably quiet for a couple episodes, or at least that's how they kind of portrayed you. But it was ironic because the fact that you were quiet spoke volumes, essentially. <laughs> <Right>. Because, <laughs> you know, by being quiet, you weren't sticking out and you were kind of getting attention in a good way. Um, and and kind of it was like playing the long game, essentially, and and uh, something that that I noticed. And uh, you know, every every time someone came up to me while it was recording, was like, "You went to school with him?" And I'm like, "I'm like, yeah." I'm like, I'm like super proud of this guy. Like he's he's on TV, and he he's he's definitely presenting himself the way that I'm sure he wants to be presented. But he's also doing it in a way where I think you know a lot of people should be taking notes with regards to what to do in that kind of situation when you're put in front of the lights, when you're put in front of the cameras and when you're given that kind of platform, you know, you got to rein it in and, and kind of remember who you are and kind of make sure that that that's what resonates. hundred percent. Couldn't agree more. So we go on the show, we make it, you know, to the end. If you want to recap for the audience, how far you made it. And then we'll talk about, you know, what happened after the show. For sure. So go on the show, film for about three months. Uh, After filming for three months, I end up coming in third place. I got one of the coolest experiences was doing the whole hometown dates. If you've seen the show, if you haven't, you bring the lead to your hometown of Brown, Buffalo, New York. And um, 
you know, they meet your parents and then you go to the next level. And that's when I was dumped right at the, uh, the table right before the fantasy suite. So I came, I joke around, I'm like, I got a bronze medal. I came in third place. <laughs> um, so that was that. And then right after the show, I immediately went back to work. So finish the show, go back to work. A month later, the show airs. And again, quiet for a few episodes. But then all of a sudden, once the episodes start going, I'm like, wait, what is happening? I'd be like in a sales meeting and I get a text. Hey, Ryan Seacrest wants you to come on the show in an hour. I'm like, I'm in a, what? Wait, what? Who? Like, I'm in a meeting. Uh, <laughs> do you want to take the opportunity or not? I'm like, uh, yeah. Canceled my next yeah. meeting. Go into the side conference room in the key bank tower and I'm taking a call with Ryan Seacrest. <laughs> I mean, it's just crazy. It's incredible. <laughs> Nuts. That's incredible. So, yeah, so yeah, I mean, I, I, so that was pretty much it. I went back to work and then there was about a year of me going, I call it my double dip year. So it was my year of working full time at the bank. And if I wasn't working, I was doing anything to monetize and grow social media. I was doing appearances. I was just going everything to make the extra couple buck because I knew I still had that October dates scheduled. Yeah. I still knew my exit. And if I had more money, that would ex extend the period of time I could go searching for what's next. Yeah. So I was going ham. And then I got to a point, you know, you know, I'm fast forwarding a lot yeah. of things here, yeah. but I ended up meeting my now fiance. They just, they asked me to be the bachelor. I signed a contract to be the bachelor. They also asked two other people to be the bachelor. They also signed a contract to be the bachelor. They made the decision to go with Colton Underwood. Yeah. And right after that is when Caitlin, my now fiance, Caitlin Bristow, came out and interviewed me. And so that was the first time I had ever met her. I had ever spoken to her. And she interviewed me to say, like, what's next? And ironically enough, what was next was right in front of me. Three months later, we started dating. Three and a half years later, we're living in Nashville, engaged with two golden retrievers. And there's a whole hell of a lot that's happened between now and then. But there was a big moment that I ended up taking off from corporate America. Uh, and that was because I kind of got pushed out the door after my social media escapades and my corporate banking world uh, came to came to a head and they kind of, the heads hit. And uh, I was put in the position to either restart my career at the bank and eliminate all my side hustle and social media or go out on my own and do whatever I wanted to do, but to leave the bank. And so uh, economically, it made more sense to leave and mentally, it made more sense to leave and strictly the pursuit of overall happiness, it made more sense to leave. So about a year after being on the show, I ended up taking off from corporate banking. Did you make it to your commitment in October? Um, so, <laughs> so I was like four months short of my okay. commitment to October. Uh, and this is where negotiating comes in and negotiating worked out in my favor and didn't have to, uh, there was no recourse for that. All right. So it was, <laughs> it was, it was a win-win. Uh, yes. yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that, you know, uh, the good, one of the main takeaways here is there's a lot of people out there, like I said, who are going to be at that crossroads. I remember when I was my story was I Googled how to write a book while I was at JP Morgan. And I literally <laughs> brought my laptop to work every single day. And I was typing away, you know, in their lunchroom before I left. And so that double dip era is one of the more confusing eras because 
you know, you know what you want to follow, you know where your passion is, you know where your heart is, but you also know that you need the stability and the income and you need mm-hmm. to make sure that, you know, you're able to provide for yourself and if you're providing for anyone else at that time. Uh, but it's eye-opening because I think in that in that period, you're making like a, a commitment and you're doubling down on yourself and you're saying like, no, 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 I'm, I'm going to follow me. If I have to choose, I'm going to choose me, you know, 100% of the time. And what's interesting is my stress levels at that point, that should have been when I was having the panic attacks. Yeah. That should have been the disaster because I was like, you know, going over here and going over and like really not staying focused. It was ironically enough when I was like all in on my job, doing what I didn't want to do is when I felt the most pressure. When I was there, I was like, whatever, like fire me. I don't care. Yeah. Uh, I think one of the interesting things too is once you start to build a little bit more financial independence, uh, your ability to sell, to step into yourself becomes so much more drastic. And so that was a big moment for me is was being able to continue to build this uh, financial, you know, just this, this nice, beautiful nest egg. Uh, I had more ability to just be me and not what they wanted me to be. And I remember that year after, right after I got back, probably from when I went on the show, when I went on the, no, just right after, right after I got off the show until I left, I didn't spend one penny of my key. That direct deposit just kept going in. I didn't spend one penny because of the uh, ability to monetize other things. And so it created great financial independence, which allows for a lot of like, just like self-freedom. Which kind of segues now into the platform that you've been building, Um, you know, and the lessons that now you're imparting on your audience. Um, Was this something brewing for a while? Or I, I know it's something that's always been, you know, interesting for you and something that you've always kind of, you know, had a passion about, but, at what point did it start to kind of turn into this business? Yeah, so I, th- I got off the show right away. And, uh, you know, I don't know, you start getting all these followers, which is like so unexpected and you're a little overwhelmed, like, whoa. And then you'll get, the, you know, the standard thing is you get these companies who will shark you a little bit, but they'll be like, you got this platform, here's a weighted blanket, I'll give you six grand post. And you're like, whoa, what, what? Okay. Uh, Sure. Like, should I just take a picture with a blanket? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we'll give you the caption, do that. And you're like, okay, cool. Let's do it. And then, you know, a bar will be like, yeah, come on over. I'll give you three grand. Da, 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 da. You're like, the sure, I'll be there. You'll, you'll, the you'll pay for days. my flights. Yeah, swipe up. So you don't know what you're doing. I'm just like, yeah. oh, swipe it away. Um, I quickly learned that um, I didn't understand the analytics or the, any type of the business component of, of the entire influencing space. So I was like, I know how, I know business. I know how to do this. I know contracts. Let's get it together. And I quickly learned the business. I quickly learned a lot of the gaps. And I said, you know what? Not only could I do this for myself much better, but I could do this for other people much better. And so I started a talent management company. Um, and now we have done, you know, we've worked with over a hundred different talent and we've done over a thousand, uh, thousand brand deals um, the right way. And so that's been really unique. But I think one of the things about like building this, to what you're saying is I said, I'm not going to, I don't want to just be the guy that's putting a blanket up and nor will that last. What do I really know? Well, and based on my business document and MBA, I said, I really know business. Well, I know personal finance. Well, so I started to see that there was a gap in my audience that they didn't know. They weren't taught a lot of these things uh, that I had learned through professional experiences in school. And so I started bringing it to light. 
And after bringing it to light, I was able to build a consulting platform, the podcast, the book, um, you know, build the agency, uh, everything around what I would say is career transparency, pay transparency, and personal financial tips to help your, your everyday consumer. And from that, we've just built a really big brand. And with that brand and impressions and numbers also comes a lot of monetization opportunity um, through all forums, but a lot of ad revenue but it's the right ad revenue. It's doing ads with you know insurance companies. You're like, I love that insurance. It's the best deal on the market. I use that insurance. Here's why you should do it. Or it's a financial app that has an AI algorithm where you're confused and you don't really understand what's happening. They explain everything in detail, give you answers, and then the ability to invest only if you understand it as opposed to slinging weighted blankets. And so the one thing I'll say to you about doing that is it sounds good, it's pretty, it's lucrative, great, but it's a fucking grind. And it is every day, consistent posting, every day the market's open for two and a half years, there are 10 to 15 story slides on our platform trading secrets about yep. the news you need to know. Every day we're posting, uh, every week we're finding new guests, every uh, you know day in and day out we're working on new masterclasses and tutorials and newsletters and text lines and getting the relevant news and putting it in a way that's understandable. I mean, it is a grind. So you really, really have to be thorough, diligent, consistent, professional. And I work you know, now, it's funny, I work 30 More. times harder. Yeah. than I did as a banker. I was going to say that. Learned. And I, I kind of wanted to share that with the audience is like, I, I see you. Like, I, I know that you are working probably more now, but at least you're doing something that you love and that's something that you're growing. But there's no way that you're sharing all this information daily and not working your ass off every single day to make sure that it comes out fluid, comes out digestible and comes out in a way where it's truly impacting, you know, your end audience. Um, but yeah, and, but I love it though. That's the yeah. difference. Like Sunday to me wasn't a weekend. Yeah. Like, yeah, I had plans to go like socialize and be friends, but I was working Sunday. Monday, yeah. I was hustling Monday. Tuesday, yeah. my Monday was Labor Day. Everyone was out like drinking. I was working my ass off. This morning, I woke up, I wanted to sleep because I haven't been yeah. sleeping well. And I picked up Caitlin from the airport at two in the morning. I'm like, I got to sleep. I got to recover. Yeah. Five, it was like 5.50. I thought about something I was like creative. I was like, nope, got to get out of it. Boom, boom, boom. I think yeah. when you find your lane and you're really enjoying it, it brings out a side of you you've never seen too. Absolutely. Um, dude, we can go on forever and I want to be cognizant of time. And honestly, this could be several more episodes. So <laughs> let me kind of round this up and, sure. and kind of bring it down to, you know, one of the major takeaways here. You know, the thing that I want people to kind of know coming out of this podcast is there could be misconceptions around what you see out there with regards to the trajectory that Jay's been on the last several years. And it could seem like it's all rosy and that it all kind of came easily. And, you know, as we talked about here, you know, there are definitely, you know, the pits that he faced in his professional career prior to ever coming onto TV. Then he talks about the, um, the crossroads he was at afterwards and kind of deciding which way to go and having to make that decision. And even now, you know, it's not that, you know, he's waking up and every day, you know, just money's falling into his pot. He's working every single day to build this platform. And so, you know, Jay, if you can kind of share one piece of wisdom, one takeaway from everything that you've lived in the last five years that you want someone to kind of walk away from this podcast being like, wow, like 
I never knew that about someone in, in, in his shoes. What would it be? Oh, wow. That's a, that's a good question. Uh, I could answer that like 8 million ways. <laughs> um, I, I'll rattle a few. I mean, I'm going to rattle sure, a few. Off. Sure. Uh, when you own a business, it just, when you own businesses, it just doesn't stop. It do, There is no checking in or checking out when you have people that work for you and you have expectations to meet and, and, and people that you're paying and big profile talent you're working with, the pressure is is pretty immense and it doesn't doesn't stop. Um, I think that one of the big things too, that just in general, my whole life I've learned so many, you know, especially with all the people I've had on the podcast, I've had been able to have some really successful people on my podcast, Trading Secrets. And I think the thing I've taken away is that when you look at someone that you really inspire to be, or that motivates you, or that um, you know just gives you different insight. Everyone, for the most part, I think there's a big assumption that a lot of that stuff came easy, or that there was a lot of luck involved. And I think what's really important is that even all these people that I've got to interview, like an A Rod, or you know, like a Gary V, or a Rob Deerdeck, uh, Jason Oppenheim from Selling Sunset. I've got to interview Mark Randolph, who started Netflix, and a couple other billionaires. Um, Every one of them set out the direction they were going to go, and they fucking took control. It was their steering wheel, and no one was driving. I think so often, even sometimes it happens to me, you wait. You wait until the email comes in. The pitch comes to you the opportunity when someone calls to work with you. And when I was a banker, kept waiting, when am I going to get my raise? When am I going to get my next promotion? When am I going to become a leader? When are they going to allow me to be the manager? If you do not ask for what you want, take clear direction of what you're trying to achieve and do it over and over and over again, you're just not going to get it. And the only way to write that story that you always wanted to write is to fucking get the pen out and do it because you think people are going to do it. You think because maybe your boss is retiring soon, it's going to be yours. If you are not vocal and putting out in every single direction what you want and how others can help you get there and how you can help yourself get there, you just won't get there. And it takes so much dedication, so much work and all those people you look up to are doing it every minute of the day, every day. Wow. That's, I mean, spot on. At the end of the day, when it comes to your story, your narrative, it's got to be your pen. And if it's not your pen, then then you're not going to own the plot. You're not going to own the ending. Um, and so I couldn't have said it better myself. Jason, thank you so much for joining today. Uh, it was a pleasure having you on. And uh, like I said, so much we could have touched on and hopefully we could bring you on in the future. So thanks again for joining today. Yes, for sure. Thank you for having my man. Go Bills. And uh, hey, dude, let's get some beer soon. It's been too long. We need absolutely. some bush lights again, just for the old time, old time's sake, y'all. Uh, absolutely, brother. <laughs> Thank you for listening today. If you enjoyed this episode of the Mile 40 Podcast, go ahead, subscribe, leave a review, and share the word. 
Thank you for being a part of the Mile 40 family. And let's unite in showing the world that comebacks are always greater than setbacks.